Well, if you have your Bibles this morning with you, I encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. Actually, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to be starting our reading there today. Our sermon passage is verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 2. We're, we've been in a, uh, just started or just begun a series in the book of Romans. And uh, last week, Jeff finished out uh, the first chapter. And um, this week, we are, we are moving into the second chapter. And if you're familiar with Romans, you know that, that Paul, in, in this section that we're in, he, he's in the middle of, of making a case. And he's made a case uh, over, over the past uh, several weeks in, in the latter half of chapter 1 of the uh, universal sinfulness of all of the Gentiles, that they are under the wrath and condemnation of God because of their sin. And today, he is, uh, he is moving on to... Uh, speaking about the Jews, and so we'll see uh, that as we start today as well as over the next uh, several weeks as we uh, look into Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, and uh, I I will read all the way through uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For all that they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And here's where our verses today come in. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of is, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your word. And it is a word that we know is, is not preached often in a lot of Christian churches today because it, it exposes the bad news about us. But yet this is what you have, you have ordained, Lord, for us to understand the bad news. That's why you placed this in Romans chapter, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 the bad news, so that we might come to understand the good news. And so I pray today as we look deeper into Romans that, Lord, you would grant us much grace to hear your word in the power of your spirit and for me to preach your word in the power of your spirit. I know that, Lord, if it's left up to my abilities, nothing will take place. But, Lord, we're asking for you to take this weak and frail man who will stumble over his words, I'm sure, as he preaches, and you to empower them because it is your gospel. That's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, make that clear today. And I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish exactly what you will today in your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there once was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had everything imaginable under his fingertips, including thousands and thousands of sheep and his multitude of flocks. The poor man, however, was destitute. He didn't even have one little sheep. But one day he was able to scrape up enough money to go and buy one little baby lamb. And that baby lamb became precious to this poor man and his children. It would eat at the, from the food of their table. At night, it would curl up with them as they sat by the crackling fire and, and they would rub his fleece. The little, the little lamb was almost like a child to the poor man and almost like a sister to his children. Well, one day, a visitor came to visit the rich man. And the rich man knew that he needed to prepare his visitor a meal, for that would be hospitable. And so he decided that as he looked at, at his thousands of flocks, he, he decided, I don't want to take any of my, my, my sheep. I don't want to slaughter anything that's mine and, and prepare a, a meal for my, for my visitor. And so the rich man got a, got a brilliant idea. He said, I'll march into the poor man's home and I'll steal his little baby lamb and I will slaughter him and I will serve him up to my guest. Now imagine if somebody did that to your beloved pet. Imagine your response, how you'd feel. Probably righteous indignation as a member of your own family. Well, that was King David's response after Nathan the prophet spoke this parable to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, speaking of the rich man, 
And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. See, it was easy for David to see the the massive injustice of the rich man. It was easy for him to rightly apply the, the judgment of God for this thief who broke God's law. But what was hard to see, in fact, what David was blind to see, was that he was guilty of an even greater injustice and deserving of an even greater punishment. If you remember, David had coveted his friend Uriah's wife. He snatched her, stole her away, and committed adultery with her. He tried to cover it up with a multitude of lies. And then, eventually, he had him murdered on the battlefield. If you've read 2 Samuel chapter 12, you know that that was Nathan's purpose in actually telling this parable to David to point out his blind spot, to get David to pronounce a right judgment on the rich man's sin and then to hold up a mirror to show him that he was guilty of the very same things and just as liable to God's judgment. In short, it was to show David that he had made a dangerous presumption in thinking that he could do the heinous things that he did and avoid God's judgment. I bet you and I have never fallen into that temptation before, have we? I bet we have have never judged other people rightly as deserving of God's wrath because of their blatant sins and then failed to apply that same standard to ourselves. I bet we have never presumed upon God's grace or presumed upon our imagined goodness or presumed upon our participation in religious things like coming to church as reasons to believe that we will escape God's judgment. See, the truth is, is fallen man is born with this innate bias towards self. A bias that that sees our sins as somehow less deserving of God's judgment. A bias that's grounded on the twin lies that we're basically good people and that we are exempt from God's wrath because God is pleased with us. Well, that is a dangerous presumption. And that is a dangerous presumption that Paul is going to hit head on today in Romans chapter 2. A little bit of context before we jump into the text this morning. You may recall that we're in this foundational section of Romans where Paul is is building a case for the universal sinfulness of mankind. That all mankind left to ourselves is under the condemnation and wrath of God because of our sin. That's what we see him doing, of course. We've seen him doing so far in Romans chapter 1 and we'll be seeing him doing that all the way till. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And over the past several weeks, you may remember Jeff's preached through this first part of Paul's case in chapter 1, which establishes that Gentiles, that's all non-Jews, are under God's righteous wrath because of their sin. And today, Paul's going to be switching gears for us, as we, as we said earlier, where he's going to begin to establish that this righteous wrath is not just for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews. In order for us to understand chapter 2, there's there's something that we have to understand that was existing in the first century in in, in Judaism. And it was a rampant problem, and that problem was presumption. See, they presumed that their covenant and ethnic status and their obedience to the law, they presumed that that shielded them from God's wrath. 
You can see this in places like Matthew chapter 3 where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to John the Baptist for his baptism of repentance. And if you remember what John the Baptist said famously, you brood of vipers. That's not good. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to that? See, they didn't think that the wrath was coming on them. They presumed that they were shielded from that. He says, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's from Matthew chapter 3. This would have been an incredibly offensive to a Pharisee and a Sadducee who presumed that all was right between them and God, who presumed that God's wrath was not reserved for them. And so what John was doing here in not so many words is he was pulling the rug right out from underneath their feet and he was exposing the error of their presumption. He was essentially saying this, your biological link to Abraham does not make you inheritors of the promises made to Abraham. You're a brood of vipers. You've broken covenant with God. And God's wrath is not shielded from you, but rather is looming over you like an axe that is ready to chop down a diseased and a fruitless tree. See, this is what Paul, the presumption that Paul is speaking into today as we go into Romans chapter 2. And it's the same one he's going to be speaking into as we go all the way through Romans chapter 2, not just today. Here's the main thing I want you to take away from verses 1 through 5 today. Beware of presuming upon your Christian privileges and God's kindness towards you in this life. Neither are sure signs that you will escape God's judgment. First point I want you to see in verses 1 through 3. Beware of presuming upon your Christian privileges. See, after hearing chapter 1 read aloud, a Jew without a proper understanding of the gospel, would have been self-righteously shaking his head in agreement with Paul. You might think if, he, if they heard a message like this in the synagogue of chapter 1, the latter half of chapter 1, you might hear echoes in the, in the synagogue saying, Amen, Paul. You go, brother. You tell them. But now, Paul in chapter 2, in Nathan-like flat fashion with David, he flips the mirror around and he says, Look. You have no excuse for thinking that you're going to avoid God's judgment because you're doing the same exact things that you're rightly condemning the Gentiles for doing. You're presuming that your privileges as descendants of Abraham and possessors of God's law is going to save you from God's judgment. And I'm here to tell you today that it's not. That's what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 3, and I want to show you that. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The first thing we see as we open up chapter 2 is a very important word in Bible study. It's the word therefore. This signals to us that Paul is drawing a conclusion from what he's just laid out in the latter chapter, uh, half of chapter 1. Namely, if you remember, that the Gentiles are under the condemnation of God, under the wrath of God because of a rotten exchange that they've made. 
They've exchanged the truth about God for lies, which has led them into idolatry and all sorts of sins. You may remember Jeff preaching on that last week. I encourage you to go back, or past few weeks, encourage you to go back to listen to those messages as, to, as he unfolds a lot of those sins. And in the latter half of, of, in the latter verse in chapter one, as Paul is drawing that first part of his case, at least to a temporary conclusion, that the Gentiles are under the condemnation of God, he writes this. Though they, the, though they, speaking of the Gentiles, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. How do they know that? Well, they know it because of general revelation that God has revealed himself, of course, in creation, but also in the conscience. In their conscience, it's God has planted that inside of them to know that doing the things that they're doing deserve death. And so he says, this, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They do the things that they know deserve death. And this is where the therefore comes in. Therefore, here's the conclusion I want to draw, Jews. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Why, Paul? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And look at verse 2. We know, speaking of the Jews, we as Jews, Paul being a Jew himself, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, just like the Gentiles, Jews, you also know God's righteous decree that those who practice the things that you're practicing deserve to die. After all, you have an even greater witness. You have not only your conscience, you have the Scriptures. You have the Old Testament. You have the law. You have God's clear and unambiguous declaration that the soul that sins shall die. You know God's righteous decree, and yet just like the Gentiles, you're practicing the very same things that you know deserve death, that you know deserve God's wrath, that you know that you deserve God's judgment, deserves God's judgment to fall upon it. So here's my conclusion, Paul said. You have no excuse for thinking that you're going to avoid God's wrath, that you're going to escape it. When judgment day comes, your privileges are not going to save you. Your biological link to Abraham ain't going to help you. Your partial obedience to the law, it's not going to shield you. Those things cannot remove your sins, and therefore those things will not remove God's righteous judgment. You've, you've made the right judgment about the Gentiles, but you've made the wrong judgment about yourselves. You see, Paul's not rebuking the Jews for passing judgment on the Gentiles. Why? Well, because his ju their judgment was right. It was in accordance with what God had said. But what Paul is rebuking them for is not applying that same standard of judgment to themselves. They have arbitrarily exempted themselves from God's judgment. They have presumed that their God-given privileges will save them. You see, when you looked at their lives, they weren't all that much different morally than the Gentiles that they were trying to pass judgment on. Paul says that they practiced the very same things. What's he referring to here? Well, He's referring to the sins that, that he mentioned in chapter 1. Probably not uh, the sin of homosexuality, since that wasn't known to be a prevalent sin amongst the Jewish community in the first century. But the other sins that Jeff preached about over the past several weeks, gossip and deceit and pride, for example. 
These are the same things that Paul says that the Jews were joining the Gentiles and practicing, the same things that they know deserve death. Yes, gossip deserves death. Listen, if you think that being saved is merely having your sins forgiven and not having your life transformed, boy, have you missed what God has said in His Word. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means they are united to Christ through faith. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a new person. It's a new heart. It's a new man or woman or child. Now, this doesn't mean that that a person becomes perfect automatically, but it does mean that your life is going to look a lot different than the rest of the world. You're not going to continue to practice the same things that Paul is talking about here. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I I read a devotional from the late R.C. Sproul. And I don't know exactly when he wrote it, um, but in in that devotional, he mentioned a survey that had been conducted by George Gallup, Jr. And the results of that survey led Gallup to conclude... That in that day and time in America, when that survey was conducted, that there was no clear behavioral patterns that distinguished professing Christians from non-Christians. They were practicing the same things. They were presuming upon their privileges as those who identify as Christians, as those are going to be a people because they identify as Christians, they're going to escape God's wrath. Let me ask you this question. What do you think the results of a survey like that today would prove? Probably be even worse. Beware of presuming upon your privileges. And boy, if you live in this country, do you have a lot of privileges. It is a privilege to live in a country where you have access to the gospel. It's a privilege to have virtually unlimited access to the Bible and solid Bible teachers, whether that be through books or podcasts, the internet, a number of places. It's a privilege to grow up in a Christian home, kids. It's a privilege to have deep roots in in, in your family history in Christianity. It's a privilege to be a member of a church. It's a privilege to sit in the pews of a church every Sunday and hear the Word of God preached and expounded. It's a privilege to have been baptized. It's a privilege to partake in the Lord's Supper like we're going to do today. But beware of presuming upon these privileges. They are not meant to be a surefire indicator that you will be saved from God's wrath, especially if there's no indication that you are indeed a new creation. If you're continuing to live in unrepentant sin, that you know God will judge because He's revealed it in His Word and you know it in your conscience, let Paul's rhetorical question in in verse 3 sink in for you today. Do you suppose, O man or woman, or teenager, or child? Do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul doesn't say it here, but he easily could have. By no means. By no means. Beware of presuming upon your privileges. Second point I want to show you in verse 4. Beware of presuming upon God's kindness towards you in this life. Beware of presuming upon God's kindness towards you in this life. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, false assumptions abound in the world as to the purpose for God's kindness towards His creatures. There are so many in the world that will tell you that, oh, I'm blessed by God. It's because I'm in a right relationship with God. God is pleased with me. And Paul is here today to tell us that that's not the purpose for God's kindness, to show you that you're right with Him. See, this word kindness or or goodness might be in some of your translations, uh, refers to God's benevolence towards His creatures. The opposite of God's kindness or goodness would be His severity. Paul says that God is not rich in severity, but He's rich in kindness. That means He dispenses an abundance of goodness towards His creatures. Maybe remember what Jesus said. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Notice that the goodness He dispenses is not just for the good and the just, but also for the evil and the unjust. That should give us a clue that God's kindness is no sign that all is well between us and Him, for even the evil experience His kindness. Even the evil experiences goodness. But not only is God kind, He says He's he's also rich in forbearance and patience. And these two words rightly fall under God's kindness. See, as the horde of His creatures live in rebellion towards towards, towards God, by and large, He withholds immediate judgment. As the mass of humanity commits cosmic treason against their Creator, He withholds the immediate unleashing of His wrath upon us. That's not because we deserve His forbearance. It's not because we deserve His patience. It's because of His very character. He is good. He is kind. He is forbearing. He is patient. If anyone should know these things, it should be the very people that Jude is speaking to. Or uh, Jude. Imagine that, I would say that. Very people that Paul is speaking to, the Jews. Their entire history is marked with God's kindness and forbearance and patience. In His kindness, He rescues them out of bondage in Egypt. In His kindness, in the face of their grumbling and unbelief, He opens up the Red Sea for them to walk through. He provides water from a rock. He sends manna from heaven. He enters into covenant with them. He gives them His law, and the list goes on and on and on. But the people were perpetually rebellious. They spurned His kindness. They bowed down to worship the golden calf. They rejected His command to enter into the promised land. They rebelled against His appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. They committed sexual immorality with the Moabite women. They bowed down to worship Baal and the other gods. And the list would go on and on and on. And though God did sometimes bring immediate judgment in those cases, for the most part, by and large, He withheld His wrath. Why? Because they deserved it? No, because of His very character. He is a God of kindness, and He's forbearing, and He's patient. But that was no sign that all was well between them and God. That was no sign that God's judgment would not fall upon His people. If you remember, except for a remnant, the entire wilderness generation fell in the wilderness, died in the wilderness before they could enter into the promised land. That was a judgment from God. Beware of presuming upon God's kindness towards you in this life. Just because your life is going well does not mean that all is well between you and God. Just because your dreams are coming true, whether that means being in the relationship that you've always wanted to be in, whether that means having the job you've always wanted, or whatever it is, 
does not mean that God's judgment for you has become untrue. Just because your marriage has been restored does not mean your relationship with God has been restored. Just because you've been delivered from something terrible, like an accident, or like an abusive relationship, or like an addiction, does not mean that you've been delivered from God's wrath. I spoke to a gentleman a few years ago uh, in this community, very well-known gentleman. He had just had a triple bypass, could have easily died on the operating table. He'd had heart problems in the past, and I just felt the impression that I needed to, I needed to get into a gospel conversation with him because I didn't know how much longer he'd have. And I asked him, I said, what would you have done if you would have died on that operating table? If, what would you have said to God if you found yourself before God after dying and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? His answer was this. Well, I would tell God, you've been there for me every time I've needed you. See what he was doing? He was presuming that God's kindness meant that all was well with him and God. Not too long before I was converted, in my mid-twenties, I had a near-death experience that was saturated in God's kindness. Some of you have heard this story before. I was flying an airplane, coming in for a landing, and right before the wheels of the plane touched the, uh, the runway, a crosswind hit the plane and turned the plane sideways. The last thing I remember when looking out the windshield of the cockpit was seeing nothing but the black asphalt because that was the direction the plane was heading. So what I did is I, I took my hands off of the yoke of the plane, I gripped the dashboard, and I closed my eyes as tight as I could, bracing for what I knew was an inevitable crash. When I finally opened my eyes, I saw what I totally did not expect to see. The airplane was going, had landed going straight down the center of the runway, and it was in one piece, and I was in one piece. You see, that was God's kindness, His kindness. But His kindness was not meant to lead me to think that all was well with me in Him. No, His kindness was meant to lead me exactly where Paul says it's meant to lead in this passage. God's kindness was meant to lead me to repentance. And by His grace, that's exactly what He did not too long after that. He led me to repentance. What is that? What's repentance? Well, question 87 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us. I encourage you to write that number down. Westminster Shorter Catechism... It's, uh, no, question number 87, what is repentance unto life? I'm not going to repeat the catechism today, but I'm going to give you a synopsis. Repentance unto life is this. It is a heart surgery performed by God. God does it. Where our sins start, all of a sudden starts to become weighty to us. It's, we start to feel that in, intense conviction of our sin because we've sinned against God. And then we apprehend the mercy of God that's being offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so out of grief for our sin and hatred for our sin, we turn from it and we turn to God with a heart that all of a sudden is desiring and determined to follow Him for the rest of the days of our lives, to submit to His Word for the rest of the days of our lives. You see, that's where God's kindness in your life is meant to lead you. It's meant to lead you to repentance. That's where His forbearance and patience, it's meant to lead you to repentance. So let me just tell you this morning, do not presume that God's kindness towards you in this life is an indication that you are exempt from His judgment. It's not meant to be a sign for that. It's meant to lead you to repentance, especially, especially if you're living in unrepentant sin which leads us to the last point in verse 5. Be warned. A hard and unrepentant heart 
is a sign that judgment day is not going to go well for you. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is a hard and impenitent heart? Well, remember, whenever we see this word heart in the Scriptures, it's usually referring to that invisible part of us that includes the mind, the desires, and our will. That part of us where we choose to do one thing or or not something. And so a hard heart is one in which the mind refuses to let God's Word penetrate, where the desires refuse to submit to His desires, where the will refuses to do what He commands. It is a heart that that is described as recalcitrant. It's not pliable. It's not moldable. It's not shapeable. It's like taking a sword and trying to stab a a hard rock. All it's going to do is just ping right off of it. You can see this clearly in a number of places in the Scripture. I'll I'll, I'll point you to one of them. Zechariah 7.12. If you remember, Zechariah is recounting here why God brought judgment upon the Israelites by exiling them uh, via the Babylonians. Here's what he says. They, speaking of the Israelites, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, in great anger came from the Lord of hosts. That anger led Him to exile them out of the land. Did you, did you see what it said though? They, they hardened their hearts. It was diamond hard. And, and what, what did that result in? Well, lest they should hear the law of God and respond to it. Lest they should hear the word of the Lord and respond to it. See, the Jews that Paul is speaking to here would have known exactly what a hard and unrepentant heart is. Their family history was full of it. Their ancestors had heard the word of the Lord audibly through the prophets, but they refused to heed it and they were judged. Beware of a hard and unrepentant heart. How do you know if you have one of those? Well, I want to offer you this morning three signs of a hard and unrepentant heart. These are by no means comprehensive, but this is a good foundation. How do you know if you've got a hard heart? Three signs. First sign, you refuse to turn from sin. You know what God's Word says about a particular sin that you love, but you refuse to turn from it. You continue to practice it. You ease your mind by thinking that there are worse sins than this and that God is a forgiving God, so everything is A-OK with you and God. You continue to justify it in your mind. Be careful. That is a sign of a hard heart. Secondly, second sign, what's a hard heart? You're growing down, not up. Here's what I mean by that. As you get older, you're not becoming sweeter in the Lord. You're becoming more bitter. You are becoming, not becoming more humble and more moldable and more shapeable by God's Word. You're becoming more prideful and stubborn. Beware. That's a sign of a hard heart. Third sign. You refuse to listen to godly counsel. When your brothers or sisters or pastors try to exhort you or admonish you with God's Word, you don't listen. You continue to go your own way. You continue to do what your mind is already made up to do, even if it means sinning against God. Beware. That's the sign of a hard heart. Look what Paul says awaits those with a hard and unrepentant heart. 
in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, here it is, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Man, this verse is dripping with irony, and here's why. In the literature of Jewish literature that was written around the time that Paul wrote this, Romans, maybe a little bit before, this word for storing up usually referred to something good, like storing up treasure or storing up rewards. And that's exactly what the Jews who would be listening to this message that Paul is, is, is speaking, this is exactly what they'd have thought, that, that, that because of their, their status as, as, as sons of Abraham and because they had the law, that God is storing up rewards for us. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Something else is being stored up for you. You're storing up wrath for yourself that will be unleashed on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul here, speaking, of course, of judgment day, this day of that God's wrath, His intense anger towards sin is unleashed in judgment upon sinners where the sheep will be separated from the goats, where the unrepentant will be separated from the repentant, Heaven for the repentant, hell for the unrepentant. I just ask you, how many people are there in church pews, sitting in church pews today, in this city, in this county, in this state, in this country, in this world, who think that God is storing up rewards for them in heaven, when in reality, God is storing up wrath for them in hell because of their hard and unrepentant hearts. Maybe you're here today or listening today and you say, Pastor, I'm afraid I might have a hard heart. I don't know how to get rid of it. How can I get a soft heart? How can I get, an un- how can I get a repentant heart? Well, Paul's already answered that question for us in Romans, hasn't he? Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation including transforming a hard and unrepentant heart into a soft and repentant heart. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you have a hard heart? You need the gospel. For God has ordained that, that power accompany the preaching of the gospel, that He, he saves people. That means he, he will transform the heart, and I am going to preach that to you this morning. What is the gospel? Well, because of your sin, the holy and righteous God, the only God, is storing up wrath for you. This wrath has been accumulating ever since you took your first breath. Its breadth and length and height and depth is so enormous that if you were to take one glimpse of it, you would die from fear. For if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Himself, as He is catches a glimpse of the wrath of God that's getting ready to be poured out on him. It says that he sweat blood in agony. And it says, he said that his soul was sorrowful even to the point of death. That means he was almost dead. He was, he was looking at this wrath. The wrath he was looking at was not his. The wrath he was looking at was yours. It was yours and it was mine. When he was nailed to the cross... He became a wrath bearer for his people. 
the wrath that had been stored up for His people because of their sins, instead of come crushing down on them in hell, instead came crushing down on Jesus in their place. He satisfied the wrath of God to the point where He did it the full way, the full measure, and He could say, it is finished. Declaring that the wrath that His people had stored up had been satisfied completely for His people. He laid down His life. His dead corpse was placed in a tomb. It was sealed. And the Jews and the Romans, they placed guards outside of the tomb so that nobody could come and steal his body. But do you think that could keep the Son of God from rising from the dead? No. He did exactly what he said he would do. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He had said before he had rose that it was going to be a sign, his rising from the dead, a sign that all of this is true. And indeed, it is an undeniable sign. How can you know that you are a recipient of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross? How can you know that the wrath that was yours has been instead taken off of you and placed upon Him and satisfied in full? Here's how you can know. God will soften your heart and He will do exactly what He said that He would do for His people. And He will, when you hear this command, you will obey it. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Stop trusting in your privileges. They won't save you. Stop trusting in your imperfect obedience. It definitely is not going to save you. Stop trusting in the vague concept that God is a forgiving God and everything is right with Him just because He's a loving God and a forgiving God. That's how the world speaks. And start trusting in His kindness to you in the gospel by starting to trust alone in His Son, Jesus Christ. The moment you do that, your sins will be forgiven, every single one of them, past, present, and future. And the very perfect record that you lack will be imputed to you as Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to you as if you had never sinned before. And on that basis, God will declare you righteous in His sight, justified. He will adopt you into His family forever. And He will give you the sweetest and best promises that you you can ever imagine. The promise of the new heaven and the new earth where you will dwell in the very presence of God with no sin, no consequences of sin, no disease, no sorrow, no relational conflict, no sitting by your loved one's bedside as they pass away. All of that gone. Every tear wiped away from every eye. The moment you repent and believe in the gospel, you will know that you have become a recipient of exactly what God said He would do for His people. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart. That's heart surgery. And I will put put a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That's that hard and unrepentant heart. And I will give you a heart of flesh. That's a heart that's alive for God and moldable and shapeable according to His Word and desires to submit to Him. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, obey my commandments. That's a new creation. For every hard and unrepentant heart listening to this message today, May the Lord Himself, through the power of His gospel, perform a heart transplant and give you a heart that is alive for Him. Oh Lord, we ask that You would do that.
As we conclude this morning, I want to share the rest of the story with you of what happened after the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin. You see, this hard-hearted man, David, (laughs) covetous, lying, adultering, murderer, all of a sudden was humbled. All of a sudden was grieved by his sin, all by God's grace. And he wanted nothing more than to turn back to his God. And this led him to pen one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance that you can ever imagine. This is what a softened and repentant heart looks like. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Boy, that's conviction. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, this is a man with a softened and repentant heart who knows his sin, who hates his sin, and who wants nothing more than to turn from it. I'll end this morning with this. Is that what your heart looks like? Beware of presuming upon your Christian privileges and God's kindness towards you in this life. Neither are sure signs that you will escape God's judgment. And I want to add on to that. Only saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, evidenced by a softened and repentant heart, is a sure sign. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in delusion. (laughs) That you don't leave us in our darkness. For Lord, if you did, I think we all here would have the the idea that all is well between us and God. I live a good life. I I do all of these things. I, I attend church. I have been baptized. I get to participate in the Lord's Supper. I, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I've been saved. Yes, God's wrath does not abide on me. Lord, thank you for not leaving us in the darkness that we are not to presume upon those things. That, Lord, that you've given us a sign. A sign of conversion is not the participation in those things. The sign of conversion is that you've made us new creations. We hate our sin. We love and want nothing more than to live in accordance with your word. We know, Lord, that even those of us who have been converted, sometimes we get hard hearts. Sometimes they begin to get hardened. And Lord, by your grace, I pray that you soften them today. (laughs) Sometimes we're so stubborn. 
Sometimes we're so set in our ways. Thank you that you brought your word to us this morning that will spur us along to, to, Lord, to seek to put any hardness in us to death by your grace. Lord, if there's any here today that are not converted, that have hard and unrepentant hearts, Lord, we would ask and beg and plead with you that you would save their souls, that you would perform that heart transplant today. And Lord, we ask that, um, that you would bless us just to be able to speak the, the truth of your word to a, a lost and a dying world. Lord, bring revival in this church. Bring revival in the churches all across the city and all across the state and land and world. And bring an awakening to the lost. For you are the one and only one who can bring awakening to anyone who's dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.